What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 60, Danish East Anglia. In 869, when the Norse killed King Edmund, East Anglia was left prostrate before them. Later legend tells us that they had demanded Edmund yield half of his kingdom to them, a demand that the king had obviously refused, for which he paid with his life. Precisely what the Norse did in East Anglia after killing Edmund is shrouded in mystery, as it is with all of what would become known as the Danelaw. Whether they settled as a warrior elite, or invited mass migration from their homelands, is an ongoing subject of controversy, and I'll discuss it more in future episodes. All that we're told by contemporary chroniclers is that the Norse conquered East Anglia following the death of Edmund. Almost certainly, the leaders of the campaign which killed Edmund mostly did not remain in East Anglia. Based on the garbled forms of their names found in later hagiography, scholars have argued that the man who killed Edmund was no less than Ivar the Boneless, a Norwegian Viking and son of Ragnar Lothbrok, who achieved his greatest success in Ireland, where he was instrumental in the creation of the Norse colony centred on Dublin. He was such a major figure in the history of the Irish Sea that his descendants, a family of Norse Gaels called the E-Eva, Gaelic for the offspring of Eva, would dominate much of Ireland, Western Scotland and the Isle of Man until the late 11th century. Following the death of Edmund, Iva didn't stay in East Anglia. Instead, he eventually returned to his Irish base of Dublin, from which he would continue to raid most of the land abutting the Irish Sea. When he finally died in Dublin in the year 873, the fragmentary annals of Ireland calls him the King of the Norsemen of all Ireland and Britain, a testament to his reputation. In East Anglia, the Scandinavian presence was augmented in 871 by the arrival of what is called the Great Summer Army, a force of mostly Danes that swelled the ranks of the Great Heathen Army, which had now been in England for the better half of a decade. The most important leader of the Summer Army, for our purposes, was Guthrum, a son of King Horik of Denmark, who had been left without a stable base at home on account of his not being the eldest of his father's sons. Like many Norsemen at this time, in a similar situation, he turns to the life of a Viking as a means to earn wealth and reputation. By 871, the Norse were established enough in England that they were able to mint coins in London in the name of one of their leaders, Halfdan Ragnarsson. Guthrum and his men could then use this base in the east of the country to launch raids into Northumbria in 872 and then again into Mercia in 874. These raids crushed both of these kingdoms and resulted in their total conquest by the invaders. Around this time in East Anglia, we find some evidence for how the invaders were administering their conquered lands. Dated to the mid-870s are two small issues of coins following the East Anglian style, which bear the names of two different kings, Oswald and Ethelred. Nothing is known about these two, since no sources for their reign have survived besides the coins. It's speculated, though, that they were both puppet kings set up by the Scandinavians to administer their conquered realms. 
This suggests a pattern in which the Danes would establish English tributaries so as to extract wealth from the pacified realms. These tributaries did all that a king normally did, but they were publicly dependent on the Danes for their continued power. How the ordinary people felt about this is something on which we can only speculate. Following the defeat of the Mercians in 874, the great heathen army split into two, with Halfdan leading a portion north to raid Pictland, while Guthrum marched south and returned to East Anglia. Here he gathered his forces and planned for several years, before finally launching a massive surprise attack on Wessex in January of 878. The Danes invaded on Epiphany and surprised King Alfred at his royal vill in Chippenham. The king was then driven into exile in Somerset as he regrouped for several months while the Danes plundered Wessex. Later that same year, Alfred met Guthrum at Eddington and there achieved a surprise victory over the Danes. In the ensuing peace treaty, Alfred and Guthrum divided England along the line of Watling Street, with all the land to the west being under Alfred's authority and all the land to the east being under Scandinavian rule. Guthrum was recognised as King of East Anglia in return for his accepting baptism and becoming Alfred's godson. At the font, Guthrum took the baptismal name Athelstan. As I discussed in my episode on Alfred, this marked the effective end of Norse expansion in England and allowed Alfred to establish his kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons, which would eventually transform into the kingdom of England. As for Guthrum, all evidence indicates that he ruled as King of East Anglia from 878 to his death in 890. The coins he produced during this time bear his baptismal name, indicating the extent to which he fused his Christianity with his royal power in his kingdom. As always, how sincere his conversion was is a matter of debate. As discussed last time, it was in the wake of Guthrum's death that the widespread gold St. Edmund coinage was minted, the first clear sign of a popular cult dedicated to the late king. Whether the popularity of the coinage has any political significance is not clear. It certainly would seem like a provocative move to mint coinage dedicated to a saint who was very publicly murdered by the people now ruling your kingdom. But if that was the intent, we don't know. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. 
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider you're using to listen to this. It also helps when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel or when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes and transcripts, as well as the opportunity to request specific topics, all by pledging to one of the show's Patreon tiers. Following Guthrum's death, East Anglia again lapses into relative obscurity. It seems from references in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that Guthrum was succeeded in 890 by a man named Eorich. It is suggested that Eorich was another Scandinavian, since his name seems to be an anglicised form of the Norse Erikur, from where we get Eric. Eorich's really only footprint in the historical record comes from his being supporter of the rebellious Atheling Athelwald in the early 10th century revolt he led against the rule of Edward the Elder. To explain this, and I'll go into greater detail about it in a later episode, when Alfred died in 899, he was succeeded by his son Edward, called the Elder by historians. But Edward was not the only claimant to the West Saxon throne in 899. When Alfred had become king in 871, he had done so following the death of his older brother, Ethelred. Ethelred had two infant sons at the time, named Athelhelm and Athelwald. By the time of Alfred's death in 899, these two sons were of age, and at least Athelwald believed that he had more right to succeed Alfred than Edward did. When Edward was recognised as king of the Anglo-Saxons in 899, Athelwald launched a rebellion, an attempt to seize the throne. The problem was that the heartlands of the kingdom, Wessex, Mercia and Kent, all remained loyal to Edward. Consequently, Athelwald turned to the Danelaw for support. First, he allied himself with the Northumbrians, and was briefly proclaimed as King of Jorvik, the Norse polity of the city of York. He appears to have led some minor raids into Edward's territory, largely focused on sites that were important to his family or that were economically important. But his rebellion really kicks into full gear in 902, when he brought a force south from the north and sailed with it, landing ultimately in Essex. From here, he arranged an alliance with Eorich, with whom he went on the offensive against Edward by launching a raid deep into Mercia. In retaliation, Edward himself launched a punitive raid into East Anglia. When he gave the order to retreat back to Wessex, after he deemed the raid a success, the forces of Kent refused to follow his order, and instead broke away to chase down Athelwald and Eorich. They found the rebels near the village of Holm in Huntingdonshire, and there set upon them. The resulting battle seems to have been a Viking victory, 
but at the cost of Athelwald and Eorich both being killed during the fight. Thus, although the Vikings won the Battle of Holm, the rebellion led by Athelwald came to a crushing end. While Athelwald was dead, Edward's failure to land the final blow himself seems to have resulted in a period of instability for the king. The East Anglians seem to have remained in a de facto state of war with Wessex until 906, when the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that they, along with the Northumbrians, concluded a peace treaty with Edward. The king who concluded this treaty is unknown, but tradition from the later 10th century says that his name was Guthrum, making him Guthrum II. The main source for this tradition is a law code known by scholars as the Laws of Edward and Guthrum. Victorian academics believe that this code was the product of the peace agreement made in 906. However, academics in the early 20th century, most notably Dorothy Whitelock and Patrick Wormald, both compellingly argued that the laws were in fact written in the late 10th or early 11th century by the prolific and opinionated Archbishop of York, Wolfstan. Wolfstan, who was deeply concerned with law as a tool for enforcing Christian morality, composed several forgeries which sought to give support to his calls for the king to use legislation for religious ends. As such, the laws of Edward and Guthrum are not reliable sources for the peace treaty of 906. They do, though, demonstrate that the king with whom Edward was remembered to have made peace was named Guthrum. The Peace of 906 was a flimsy and short-lived thing anyway. By 909, Edward was again at war with Northumbria, and with it, East Anglia and the rest of the Danelaw. When in 911, Ethelred, the Lord of the Mercians, died and was succeeded by his wife Ethelflad, Edward seems to have taken the opportunity to go fully on the offensive against the Danelaw. With Athelflaed, Edward oversaw the large campaign of fortress building in the Midlands. In 917, after successfully capitalising on Danish internal instability, Athelflaed succeeded in capturing the city of Derby. At the same time, Edward fortified a boer at Toster in Northamptonshire to guard against any East Anglian attacks. In response, the East Anglians fortified the boer of Tempsford. After a failed Danish attack on Toster, Edward launched an assault on Tempsford, in which Guthrum II was killed. Following this success, Edward had the Boer at Tosta reinforced with stone walls, making it an even more formidable sign of his power. With their king dead, the English even more entrenched than ever, and an invasion of East Anglia looming, the East Angles offered their surrender to Edward and swore loyalty to him as their king. With this, East Anglia was incorporated into the emerging Kingdom of England. While it had often been the object of invasion and domination, East Anglia had, with a few exceptions, remained a distinct kingdom up until 917. With the submission to Edward, though, it accepted the same fate as Mercia had under Alfred, the demotion of its nobility from kings to lords, and an obligation to support the king on his endeavours and through taxes, in return for military protection and certain legal benefits. In essence, this was not that different from what Offa had tried to impose, but now the former rulers of so many of England's kingdoms had been left so exhausted and diminished by decades of Viking occupation that there was no possibility of a restoration. The Wolfingas had ceased to exist long before 917, 
and so East Anglia's throne had been fought over by various younger dynasties for quite some time, and some of these were doubtless tainted by the stain of collaboration with the Danes. In such an environment, Edward offered the best hope for peace and protection, and thus the East Anglian leaders opted to take the carrot that was offered to them, even if this came only after a protracted period of being beaten with the stick. The result, in the end, was that East Anglia ceased to exist as an independent kingdom, and finally became part of the Kingdom of England. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you'll join me again next time. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.